How are we doing? Happy Easter to all of you. This is uh, such an amazing thing to see and experience. I was just uh, recalling, it was two years ago, I did Easter in this room in an empty room. And uh, now just to see it uh, filled up, in fact, last hour, we had over 400 people in overflow at this campus. So just amazing. Um, to see everybody, and uh, we've had uh, dozens and dozens of baptisms so far on the weekend. We've got more to go uh, in this uh, service, and uh, just uh, thrilled that you're here. Want to say hello to everybody gathered across all of our physical locations, anybody joining us online, maybe from another state. And if you happen to be in the room because somebody invited you to come, a friend or a family member, you're not normally a churchgoer, but you came today. Man, I'm so thrilled that you're here. And uh, hopefully you've gotten one of these cards in your hand. I want uh, to ask everyone to grab one of these. It doesn't matter uh, your age. It doesn't matter if you've been in our church for 20 years or 20 minutes. And I wanna ask you to take just a few minutes to fill out this Easter survey card. Now, this is not a gimmick. We're not gonna sign you up for anything. We're not putting your name on any sort of email list and I will not show up at your front door unless, unless you want me to, all right? Uh, but uh, this is very uh, general information here uh, that we wanna uh, get from you. And here's the purpose behind it is that we just wanna know how to care for you better. Now, some of you might be like, why in the world are we taking a survey on Easter? Very simple. This is the one weekend you all decide to show up at the same time. <laughs> so we wanna try to get some good content from you while you're here. So if you just take this and we've built this time into the service. So if you take 60 to 80 seconds and just do it right now, just, just fill out uh, some of these boxes. You'll just see that there's some questions here about just general life pressure. What are you uncertain about? Um, relationship struggles, what, are your, what would be really helpful to you uh, to take your next steps in your personal and spiritual growth? Uh, here in about six weeks, I will go on what's, uh, I just call my annual study break. It's between Memorial Day and the 4th of July. And I just get away out of town and just seek out God's direction for the upcoming year's worth of sermon series. They usually get laid out a year in advance. And uh, this content is just gonna really be helpful for me as I prayerfully just kind of lay out uh, where we're headed over the next year. So I really appreciate you taking the time to give us a little bit of this information. While you're finishing the card up, I've got a couple of things that I just wanna let you know about. Um, in September of this year, we're gonna be relaunching our Northeast campus. And we are super excited about that. Uh, you can see uh, each of these indicate where our current campuses are. Um, and the Northeast campus will be in the Fishers area. Those of you that have been in our church for a while, you might recall that we launched this campus about 30 minutes before COVID and uh, made the really gut-wrenching uh, uh, gut decision to push pause on that. And it was a hard decision. It was the right decision, but now it's the right decision to relaunch. And so if you live on the Northeast side, you know somebody who does, you wanna be a part of that campus launch, be looking for more information about that coming very, very soon and obviously be praying about it. Uh, second thing I want you to know is I wanna invite you back next week. Uh, we're gonna be kicking off a five-week series of messages beginning next weekend called Significant Other. And I think that all of us would agree that one of the things that makes life so rich and rewarding are the relationships that we have. Uh, friends, family, and a significant other, whatever that looks like. I think we'd also agree that one of the things that makes life so challenging and even painful is the relationships that we have. Uh, friends, family, and a significant other. And so we're gonna talk about why that is, what went wrong, and what God is doing to redeem it. Now, I wanna just, uh, say a couple of things. This is not a marriage series. 
So we will talk about marriage within the series, but it's not a marriage series. So don't write it off as that just yet. Uh, it's a relationship series. And you're gonna see what I'm gonna talk about next week as we kind of open this up. The other thing I would just say is if you're not normally a churchgoer, like you came on Easter because it's Easter or somebody invited you or threatened you. And so you came. I just wanna ask you to give this next series a shot. Like just give it a shot. Like five weeks, reserve your judgment on it until the fifth week. Then after the fifth week, you know, judge away. Uh, but just come and just see what uh, uh, might happen in this series. I, I, I promise you that you'll hear some things that you don't agree with, and that is okay. Like if you agreed with everything, then we're wasting our time. Uh, if uh, you'll come and actually there'll be some things that you'll learn, you, you just weren't aware of. You'll have some of your assumptions challenged. And we're gonna speak very directly to some things that the uh, culture is speaking very directly to. And at the very end of the series, here's what I guarantee you. You'll find it helpful and hopeful, regardless of where you stand with God or regardless of your relationship status. So I wanna encourage you to be back next week uh, for that. All right, I hope you have, I've uh, given you enough time to finish up the uh, Easter survey card. Thanks for dropping that off uh, right now or on your way out. Uh, we are uh, actually wrapping up a series today that we have been in over the last few weeks. We've been talking about this question around like, uh, who is Jesus really? And uh, the big idea behind this is that uh, pretty much all of us have some sort of preconceived notion in our minds as to who Jesus is that has been informed by something or someone. So some of us, we'd be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. I believe that. Others of us, I'm not so sure. I think Jesus was just a good teacher. He was a good rabbi. He was a respected. Certainly he impacted things, but I'm not quite sure that he was the son of God. There's a lot of us, one of the things we have a tendency to do, even those of us that grew up in church, we have a tendency to sort of recreate Jesus uh, in our own image. Meaning that Jesus he certainly uh, sounds a lot like me and talks like me and looks like me and listens to all the same music that I listen to. And strangely, Jesus is just so much like me. And we just have these preconceived notions. And what we've been doing is just kind of walking through to say, well, who is Jesus really? You know, we didn't have video cameras or cameras uh, 2000 years ago. So we don't really know fully what he looks like. We do know this. The prophet Isaiah said that there's nothing that would have drawn your attention to him. Meaning that he wasn't much of a looker, just pretty average. Um, there's been a lot of uh, artists that have tried to draw these depictions of who they thought Jesus is. And all of this has sort of formed our understanding of him. Uh, and some of these are just, you know, crazy. You got veterinarian Jesus, <laughs> just very concerned about the lambs and uh, giving his vaccination or something. You, you got ripped Jesus, you know, he <laughs> clearly spent a lot of time in the gym getting six pack abs, getting ready for that cross. You got dreamy Jesus, just get... <laughs> lost in those big brown eyes of his. That's creepy. You got Prozac Jesus, you know, just seems really sad, kind of down. And, uh, and very few of us nowadays are interested in Jesus as Savior and Lord. What we really want is homeboy Jesus. We want Jesus to be our buddy. We want him to make us a better version of ourselves. And so what we've been doing in this series is we've just simply been setting all the assumptions aside and say, well, who did Jesus say that he was? And just kind of walking through some of the I am statements of the scripture. And Jesus said that he was the way. Like he didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm one of several ways, like pick the one you want to go. He, he said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. We don't like that. None of us like that because it sounds so exclusive. But the reason why is because he's the only one who exclusively went to a cross. 
He's the only one that exclusively walked out of a grave. And because he walked out of a grave, you and I can have hope beyond ours. And so today, as we begin to wrap this series up, I want us to walk through a conversation that Jesus has with a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter three. And what Jesus is gonna do is he's going to let Nicodemus know that he can experience a fresh start and a brand new beginning. And I'm just curious if there's anybody listening to this today, and that sounds pretty good. After the couple of years that we've been through, anybody need a fresh start? Anybody need a new beginning? You wish you could just hit a reset button on that relationship? Wish you could have a do-over or a mulligan on that marriage or that career? All of us are looking for a fresh start. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of something called a cold plunge, but I've been hearing a lot about them lately. A cold plunge, I think we've got an image of this, where you just kind of fill up a container full of ice water and then you get in on purpose. And you sit there for several minutes and there's a lot of health benefits to this. Uh, it'll boost your immune system, gives you better sleep, pulls inflammation out of your body. I've been reading a lot about these cold plunges. I don't have one, um, but I do have a pond behind my house. And so several months ago, it was starting to get cold out, get, getting into the winter months and there's a little bit of ice in the pond. And I'd been thinking about this. I wanted to try it. I was home by myself. I was sitting at the back door, drinking my coffee in my shorts. And I just said, you know what, I'm gonna do it. And so I walked out to our pond. We have this little dock that kind of goes out on the edge. And I walked out to the edge, nobody was home. And I was like, all right, I'm just gonna do this before I talk myself out of it. So I set the coffee down. I didn't test the water to see how cold it was. I just jumped in. All right, so I don't recommend this. Um, it immediately took my breath away. Uh, the world started spinning and I turned around to get out because all, that's all I could think of was to get out. And I had actually jumped a lot further away from the dock than what I thought. And so it was a little bit of a swim. And as I'm swimming, my limbs go numb. And I remember thinking that, you know, when you can get so cold that your body stops functioning, even though you remain conscious. And I thought to myself, I might not make it back to the dock. And then I thought uh, there were two groups of people that flashed through my mind in that moment as I'm facing down death. <laughs> I'm a little dramatic, all right? <laughs> my wife and my kids, all right, naturally I thought about them. And I just want you to know this. I thought about all of you. Now, not because I love you. I mean, although, although I, I do love you, all right? But because I thought to myself, I have got to survive this because I, if I pass away from this, what in the world are you all gonna think? <laughs> Local pastor found dead in pond wearing shorts in the middle of winter. And you're gonna be like, what in the world was he into? I was like, I gotta survive this thing to tell the story. And uh, my wife made me promise that I would never do it ever again uh, in an uncontrolled environment like that. So I will do it, but just not in the pond, but I highly recommend it, all right? Uh, it's, it, it, it felt refreshing, all right? And in John chapter three, Jesus is going to tell this guy named Nicodemus how to experience a fresh start. Now, here's the thing that I want you to know about Nick. He didn't know he needed it because he was pretty well accomplished, like many of us. Like he drove a nice camel, he worked a nice job. Like the dude had it all together from the outside looking in. And yet Jesus sees past all the exterior that we sort of try to prop ourselves up with. And he knew the condition of his heart. What you may or may not know about the gospels, which are just the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are the biography of the life of Jesus. They tell us what God wants us to know about who Jesus is 
uh, what he did and what he said. Now, they were written either by the eyewitnesses themselves or by interviewing eyewitnesses. And the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're known as the synoptic gospels. All that means is that they were written relatively around the same time period, which means they likely would have compared notes. Like Mark would have been to Matthew, hey, Matthew, are you gonna put that, in the story? Are you gonna put that story in? And here's what I'm gonna say about it. And, and they would give us different versions of it because they're giving us their perspective on it. It gives us more of a 360 truth. John's gospel is different. John's gospel was written much, much later, and it was written by, uh, obviously, John. And what you need to know about John is that he, uh, was a, he was a teenager when Jesus went to a cross. He was a disciple. He was a really close friend. He was part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And he was later an apostle. He pastored several churches throughout Asia Minor. I tell you all that to say this. John was not in a rush to write his gospel, and I love that. He waited lifetime of service, decades of faithfulness, the ups and the downs, the spiritual deserts. John is a seasoned veteran, a sage of an old man when he writes his gospel. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were just primarily concerned about getting all the details right so that way future generations would know what Jesus said and did. John's not nearly as interested in that. John writes to help you move from unbelief to belief. John is the most theological of the four gospels, but he's arguably the most accessible because he wants you to know that Jesus is God. This is why anybody that comes to me and they say, you know, I'm really interested in beginning to read the Bible. Where do I start? And I'm like, why don't you read a proverb a day? There's 31 of them. And why don't you start in the gospel of John and get familiar with this man named Jesus? And I'm just wondering if there's anybody here today and you're more than skeptical, like, like you've rejected. Maybe there was a time in your life when you believed, maybe growing up, maybe in college, maybe there was a certain season you believed, but somewhere along the line, maybe it was a painful experience. Maybe it was somebody who betrayed you. Maybe it was just, you just begin to get a bit jaded because it felt like God was so distant. You moved into the category of unbelief. And that's where you've been living for a while. Maybe for some of you, you used to attend, you used to be involved, but with the pandemic, you developed new routines and habits and church really isn't a part of that anymore. You're, you're here because it's Easter. Maybe uh, you used to walk with God, but somewhere along the line, you walked away. And John states the overall purpose of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. In John chapter two, verse 25, I love this. It says, no one needed to tell him, him is Jesus. No one needed to tell Jesus about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. What I just want you to know is that God knows you like the real you. Not the you you present to others. Not the you on social media. Not the you that when somebody says, hey, how you doing? You put a fake smile on your face and say, I'm fine. Blessed and highly favored. And you're lying through your teeth. He goes, no, I know what you're going through. And I see you right where you are. <laughs> and man, I love you so much. And it is with that truth that we are ready to hear what Jesus has to say to Nicodemus. Look at it in verse one. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. A couple things I just wanna break down. By the way, if you're new around here, I'm just gonna read and explain, read and explain, read and explain, apply and be done. That's what I'm gonna do. 
And so uh, Nicodemus is a religious leader known as a Pharisee. Now, uh, maybe you've heard that term before. Pharisee was just like a prominent religious leader, but Nicodemus is more than that. Nicodemus was known, he was a part of the Sanhedrin. And basically all that means is he was like the Navy SEALs of Pharisees. Like the guy has reached the top that you, there's no more rungs in the ladder for him to climb. What I also want you to know about him is that he was likely in his mid sixties during this conversation, Jesus would have been in his early thirties. So he is 35 years or so Jesus senior, which means, and you're going to see this in the conversation, he's somewhat, he's respectful for sure, but he's somewhat condescending in the way that he speaks to Jesus. Look at what it says in verse two. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. John, for whatever reason, wanted us to know what time of day it was. We don't really know why. Now we do know that light and darkness are a big theme in John's gospel. But he says, hey, after the sun went down late into the evening, that's when they talk. And there's, we don't really know why. Lots of commentators like to speculate. The biggest one is, is people just assume that Nicodemus was sort of ashamed to meet with Jesus. And he didn't want other Navy SEAL Pharisees to know what he was doing. And so he meets in the shadows of the dark. And we've even got some corny preacher jokes that say, you know, Nick at night, you know, and all that stuff. <laughs> Never heard that one before. Uh, there's a reason. Um, I'd like to assume the best. I don't know that Nicodemus is embarrassed to be seen talking to Jesus. I almost even wonder, like he is a very prominent religious leader in the community. Jesus is a new rock star rabbi. And I think if they got together at a sidewalk cafe for coffee in the middle of the afternoon, they'd probably be hounded by paparazzi. So I think he just waits till it's dark. So that way they can have a private conversation. And he says to Jesus, rabbi. First time Jesus is called rabbi in John's gospel, by the way. He's called Logos, he's called Messiah, he's called Lamb of God. First time he's been called rabbi. And it's a respectful term and it's a true term, but it's horribly insufficient. Jesus is much more than a rabbi. And, and he says to him, we all know, who's we? Likely the other guys in the Sanhedrin. They've been talking about this rock star rabbi that's sort of making them a bit nervous. And he goes, hey, I just want you to know, like we all recognize that God has sent you to teach us. True, not entirely true. For sure, Jesus came to teach. Came much more to do than that. He goes, your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. True, not the entire truth. God wasn't just with him. He was God. Here's what Nicodemus is saying in a somewhat of a condescending way. Jesus, hey, uh, we've all been talking and we just wanna recognize you got game. We can acknowledge that God's doing some stuff through you. You got some skills with a Z. And uh, we'd like to invite you to bring your skills uh, onto our team. Uh, as if he is like some sort of a Marvel superhero and they just discovered, you know, a new one and they want to bring him a part of their crew. And I love, and here's what Nicodemus is saying. Hey, Jesus, why don't you let me disciple you for a while? Hey, Jesus, why don't you let me take you under my wing and I'll teach you. Uh, some things that you never learned before. And uh, I love the fact that Jesus doesn't acknowledge a single thing Nicodemus says. He looks right at him in verse three and he says, I tell you the truth. Just imagine the steely gaze in his eyes. I tell you the truth, old man. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice he doesn't say enter. He says, see, 
That's important to know. He said, man, you, you gotta be born again even to see it. And Nicodemus's question is maybe a question that you have. He goes, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, can I just say that's downright disturbing. And I don't think that Nicodemus is being serious. I think that he's being facetious. And when are you facetious? When you're annoyed, when you're a little bit uncomfortable, when you're somewhat defensive. And so I think he pulls out this crazy like picture and says, you know, Jesus, how in the world can this happen? And once again, Jesus isn't deterred by this. He knows what is in Nicodemus's heart. And so once again, he looks him right in the eye. And in verse five, he says, I assure you, notice the steely gaze. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born. Two things here, if you're taking notes or drawing in your Bible, water and wind, water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only by human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the spirit. I wanna hone in on that last sentence. Here's essentially what Jesus said. He said, you can't explain how somebody becomes a Christian. It's a miracle. And I don't think we say that enough. It's a miracle when somebody becomes a Christian. Here's what I mean. No amount of knowledge will get you there. No amount of behavior modification will get you there. You didn't just wake up one day and just like, I just, in my own ingenuity, in my own desires, I decided to lay my life down and follow Jesus. Jesus is saying that it's a spiritual rebirth which means that it's the Holy Spirit that chases you down. It's the Holy Spirit that prompts you. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts you. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you the understanding of this. It's the Holy Spirit that seals you and secures you. Jesus is using metaphors here of wind and water to describe what it means to become a Christian. And he uses this, um, the, the uh, analogy of like actual childbirth that at the birth of a child, there is water, the embryonic fluid that the fetus is in, and then the water breaks. And when the water breaks, you know that the baby's coming. And then I've been, I've been in the room for all four of my kids' births. And as they emerge, I've been there when they take their first <gasps> breath. And even now, like the sign of life is water and wind. Your body is mostly made of water. And how do you know if you're alive? Are you sucking in air? So water and wind, these are the signs of life. And he says it's the exact same thing when it comes to a spiritual rebirth. And it's an absolute miracle, meaning you cannot do it to yourself. And I mean this, um, uh, are you there? Yes. Are you involved? Yes. In the same way that a baby is there and involved in its birth, but it didn't do any of the work. I need to hear from you moms right now. Can I get a good amen? Yeah, the baby didn't do nothing. You did, husband, get out of the room, right? You did all the pushing. The baby was just there. The baby didn't say, I've decided to be born today. The baby didn't say, well, I'm gonna claw my way out of here. No, the baby did nothing. It was just there. And Jesus says the exact same thing happens when a person becomes a Christian and you just can't understand it because it is a move of the spirit. 
So let me say it this way. A new beginning that we're all looking for requires a spiritual birth. And think about all the ways we try to get around that because we don't like that. We all want a new beginning. We all want a fresh start. I just want to go about it on my own terms. So I'm going to try harder. I'm going to attend more. I'm going to read my Bible, do my best, lean in, show up, be a better version of me, turn over a new leaf, achieve all my goals. Nothing wrong with any of that. Jesus says it won't stick. You've got to be born again. And he describes it as a miracle. And after about 25 years of full-time ministry, I know I don't look that old. I started when I was 12, sort of a child prodigy thing. It's a whole other deal. All right, I'll tell you another time. After 25 years of ministry, um, I cannot tell you why somebody becomes a Christian. I do not know. Here's what I mean. There have been some people that I've invested an exorbitant amount of time, energy, and prayer. I've been there for them in their time of need. They've had questions. I went and did research. I came back with eloquent answers. I prayed and prayed for them. I tried to be a friend. And the result was they just kind of looked at the invitation to follow Jesus. And they went, eh, and walked away. I've been around people. I was just talking to some people even earlier that godly people raised their kids in the church and they they were not, they, they, they were as consistent as they could be. There's a hypocrite in all of us, but they were as consistent as they could be. And yet their kids chose to walk away. You can't even explain it. And then I've been around other people And honestly, as a pastor, I felt guilty because I felt like I should have given them more of my time. And I told them I'd pray and I really didn't. And they asked me a question. I really messed it up. I kind of fumbled it and I didn't, I wasn't very clear. And and yet they gave their life to Jesus. And it's like a real authentic life transformation thing. And it's like, man, in spite of me, they gave their life to Christ. And I met other people that didn't grow up in church at all. They were involved in a really, really dark lifestyle and God rescued them out of it, like pulled them out of it. And you look at it and you go, this just doesn't make any sense. I can't understand it. There is a mystery to when somebody becomes a Christian, which means that the pressure's off of me. This is my 15th Easter at Traders Point. And in my earlier days, and some of you have been around long enough to remember this, on these special days, I would try way too hard. I would swing for the fences and foul it off. And uh, because I just felt all this pressure. Oh man, you know, it's gotta be the perfect sermon and I gotta be funny and I gotta use these great illustrations and I gotta like just anticipate all the arguments and I gotta come back with airtight defenses and I gotta convince you to become a Christian. I've gotten to this place where I'm just kind of like, nah, I just need to deliver the mail. I just need to lay it out there because there's just this mystery to it. I had a uh, church planner, a guy who just planted a church in Miami, Florida uh, a couple months ago. And he texted me Friday night. He's really, he's like, I'm so nervous about Easter. Do you have any advice for me? And I texted him back and I said, man, relax. This is the easiest weekend out of the year. Everybody shows up and the sermon's already written. It's the resurrection. Just get up and say that, right? And so I just want you to know all I'm going to do, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to eloquently convince you because if I could eloquently convince you, you'd respond for all the wrong reasons. Now I'm not saying that there aren't eloquent responses. There are. Some of the most brilliant minds in history have been Christ followers. Some of the most brilliant minds in history have not been. 
there's a mystery to this that you just can't fully explain or put your finger on. One of, uh, many of you may recognize the name Brian Welch from the band Korn, and uh, he is a guitarist for Korn. And I remember uh, when I was in college, um, hearing about this band, listening to them, seeing them on MTV, quite honestly, they scared me. They still do, actually. And, uh, you know, just, you know, dreads and tattoos and just, uh, you know, came from really, really dark places. And many of you may know Brian's story. Brian's been to our church before. Um, is that he just dramatically gave his life to Christ. And even he couldn't fully explain it to you. It's not like he went on some spiritual journey trying to figure out. It was as if God chased him down and ran him down. And I've had the privilege over the last few years just to be friends with Brian and, and to get to talk to him and spend time with him behind closed doors. And can I just say, like, he's the real deal. Like, he really does love Jesus. And every time that I see that and I look at his story, I just shake my head. I'm just like, I don't get it. Like, how is it that God chased him down and rescued him and brought him from darkness to light? There's this mystery to it. And it's a beautiful thing. In fact, uh, he texted me just a couple nights ago. I didn't see this until later. He texted me at 1.13 in the morning, so <laughs> go figure. But I love what he said. He just said, simply said this. He goes, hey, bless your resurrection weekend, brother. He is risen and so are we. And I just teared up reading that because I'm reminded once again that this gospel message is for anyone and everyone. There is no one that is too far gone. There is no one that is too dark. There is no one that is too addicted. There is no one that can out the grace of God. Ooh, now Nicodemus is gonna ask a question that maybe some of you are asking right now. How are these things possible? And Jesus replied. Now Jesus is gonna get a little condescending towards him. I love Jesus so much. You are a respected Jewish teacher and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we will tell you what we know and have seen and yet you won't believe our testimony. Wow. That Jesus just said what I just said, just in way tighter way. He said, I could totally say all this stuff to try to convince you and you wouldn't believe. He goes, but if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. In those last couple of sentences, you may be like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? He is actually referencing a pretty obscure passage in the Old Testament, it's Numbers 21. You can go back and read it later today, in which the Israelites are grumbling against their leader, Moses. And so God sends fiery serpents, venomous serpents, to bite them, and now they are dying. What a great story. Like those of you, your kids are acting up during the day, just read that to them at bedtime and say, this is what happens to bad little boys and girls. God sends snakes to bite you, all right? So the Israelites were really, really sorry. A snake bite will do that. And so they are like, Moses, what do we do? And so Moses in his compassion, he goes to God and he says, God, they're really, really sorry. And here's what God says. God says to Moses, create a replica of a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, lift it up. I love this, lift it up. And every one of them who just looks at it, they'll be healed. I love that. Because how easy is that? He didn't say, hey, everyone who takes a test and passes, 
Everyone who shows me that they're really, really sorry, everybody who pays a penance or pays a price, he just says, no, just tell them to look at it. And you know what? Not everybody did. See, here's the thing is that all you have to do is look at it. And Jesus is saying, this is a reference. This is a foreshadowing of when Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. And here's what he's saying. All you got to do is look at me. All you got to do is look to me and you'll be healed. We oftentimes make this far too difficult, more difficult than it needs to be. Jesus is explaining to a man who appears to have it all together what it means to experience new life. We have lots of examples in the gospels of Jesus finding what we might call the down and outs, tax collectors and prostitutes, people with really, really messed up lives. We have a tendency to judge sin by exterior. Jesus judges sin on the interior. And on the exterior, we might see different levels of sin. On the interior, Jesus just sees sin. There's no levels. There might be differences of consequence, but there's no really bad sinners and then just good sinners. There's just sinners. And Jesus comes to Nicodemus. This is a pastor. This is a, somebody who's religiously elite. This is somebody who's morally upright. If there was anybody that could earn salvation on their own, it would have been him. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And it shows me that no amount of knowledge, moral performance, or good behavior puts anything right between me and God. See, all of your religious behavior and righteous activity is not enough. All of your achieving accomplishments and accolades won't give you the peace that you're looking for. What you need is a miracle. And it is something that you cannot do for yourself. You need to be born again. We are not mistakers in need of a life coach. We are sinners in need of a savior. And this isn't a little spiritual redecorating, but a complete demo and renovation of the heart. And maybe there was one time in your life where you got religious, you were sprinkled, confirmed, dedicated, rededicated, sponsored, and nominated. Maybe you attended, raised a hand, walked an aisle, went to an event, read a book, prayed a prayer, got an emotional buzz, but you never received Jesus for who he really is, the hope of new life. All you did was you just snapped on external beliefs and behaviors and it never took root. Some of you were raised in church. You were never raised in Christ and you walked away from both. So you got to get to the root. My great grandparents had a grape vineyard when they were alive and we used to pick grapes and we would take them into her kitchen. She'd put them in a big vat. She'd boil it. She'd make us fresh homemade grape juice. Man, there's nothing like it. And my grandparents, if they had decided to get rid of the grapes and they wanted to have an apple orchard instead, how would they have gone about doing it? Well, they wouldn't have gone and uh, picked all the grapes off the vines and then tried to you know, fasten apples to the edges of the vines. And then hopefully next year it would just produce apples. That's crazy. No, you would actually dig up the vines and you would replant apple seeds to eventually get an apple orchard. And what many of us do when we just snap on external beliefs and behaviors, a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of sin modification, behavioral modification, trying to image management. Let me try to read my Bible and pray and go to church. All we're doing is, is we're attaching apples to vines and we're not really getting to the root. And it is a radical transformation of the heart. And we don't like that word radical, especially in church, makes us nervous because it sounds like irrationalism, but that's not what the word means. It's really unfortunate that the word radical has sort of been hijacked as it comes from the Latin word radix. And it just means root. 
You just get to the very root of the issue, the very heart of the matter. And here's the gospel message. In Ephesians, it lays it out like this. Once you were dead. Pop quiz, can dead people respond? Last time I checked, no. Because of your disobedience and your many sins, you were spiritually dead. But God, oh man, he's so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. We didn't have to earn it. He gave it to us when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by grace that you have been saved. Man, may you never, ever forget that because oftentimes we respond to the gospel message and the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we forget about that and we think, well, it's grace and. It's grace and my knowledge. It's grace and my behavior. You know what that produces? It produces modern day Pharisees who look down on other people. And we fail to remember that we are all in need, but by the grace of God, there isn't a single one of us that stands a chance. And may we never forget that. Because many of us, our, heart, our heads are so full of doctrine and our hearts are so far from Jesus because we're not giving that same, we're just, all we're simply saying is look to him, look to him. So I want you to know this. The gospel is not about making good people better. The gospel is about bringing dead people to life. And that is a miracle. So some of you might be like, well, do I have any responsibility in the matter? Yep, you do. There is something you have to do. You have to get real. Jesus already knows what's in your heart. So stop trying to hide it. You, you, just, you just come clean. And I never want to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. And I, I just simply want you to know, I never ever want to stand on this stage or pretend to be something that I'm not. I wanna be the same guy on this stage that I am off of it. And I never wanna pretend like I've got it all together. I never want to, I never want you to assume that I'm beyond any sort of sin, that I'm, I am a beggar that continues to need to be in need of God's grace. And if we're to be honest right now, many of you have really been struggling to listen to this message because you just can't get past the fact that I'm wearing a suit jacket right now. <laughs> You're so confused. And, uh, and uh, honestly, like, you know, I, I make the joke that uh, if you see me in a suit jacket, it means somebody's getting married or buried. And uh, ain't no wedding cake here today. So uh, you uh, fill in the blanks. This suit jacket actually is not a very accurate representation of me. I feel really uncomfortable wearing it. Um, this, my shirt actually is, um, <laughs> this is actually a better representation of me. And um, and this is not a gimmick or an illustration. This is a mirror, like this is real. And I just want you to know that there is not anybody listening to this. I, I genuinely mean this. There isn't anybody listening to this who's a worse sinner than me. I'm in just as much need of God's grace and mercy as anyone else. And only by the grace of God can I even stand here. And so what, what do you, what is it, how, do you, how do you experience that new birth? Well, you take off the jacket and you stop pretending. You stop hiding. Amen. 
I want to be, I want to be careful here how I say this because I understand like church hurt and church baggage is a real thing. But many of you walked away from God because of church hurt. And I understand. But, um, and so, you know, we'll say, well, I don't want to go to church. You know, those people are just hypocrites. Well, of course they are. <laughs> All of us are like this. Like, you know, the churches are messy because people are messy. And we're all in need of God's grace, running after being transformed more and more into his image. And so I wanna be a church where we remove the jacket and we stand in the grace of God, recognizing that we can't do anything to earn it. And it is a miracle when somebody crosses over from death to life. So what, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that you just simply believe that Jesus is the son of God. You, you confess your sins, you take off the jacket, you repent, which means you turn around and you begin to move away from the way that you were traveling before and you move more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. It's called sanctification. And the fourth thing that the Bible asks us to do is to be baptized. And it's that last one that's weird. I mean, it's so, baptism is so weird. I don't understand it. And I think there's a mystery to that. It's the water that Jesus is referencing in this passage. And it is the number one thing that people resist. There's a lot more people that have believed, confessed, and repented, very few that have followed through on the fourth part. And we'll do anything but that. And we really resist it. And, and what I want you to know about baptism is that it is a death. You are being buried in a watery grave, identifying with Christ, Romans 6 says, and then you're being resurrected as a new creation in Christ. And there's something very mysterious about that. It seems silly. Adults dunking other adults in a bathtub. Very silly. Something very powerful about it because there's a mystery to it. And I think the reason why God instituted it is to get us to face our own pride and to get us to die to our sin. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. It means to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. The problem is that when we translated it from Greek to English, we didn't translate it. We transliterated it. If we would have translated it, it would be, we, would, we would not even have the word baptism. We would just say, um, dunk. But we transliterated it, so we took a Greek word and, and made up an English word. So we took baptizo and just said, well, baptism. But it just simply means to, well, some of you are like, well, what about my sprinkling? I was sprinkled as an infant. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. It also doesn't instruct it. And many of you have been sprinkled. I think that's great. I think your parents and, for your parents and your grandparents, because they're the only ones that have memory of it. But now you need to be immersed and you're not forsaking their guidance in your life. You're building upon the foundation that they laid for you. Baptism is a, an amazing thing. It's a very violent thing, actually, because somebody is dying and you're being resurrected. A few years ago, I... Uh, was uh, baptizing a couple of teenage girls in that baptistry. And one of them was deathly afraid of water. And she didn't tell me that. And I wish she would have. And so I, I took her confession. And as I was taking her down, it was as if I was trying to dunk a cat under the water. Like she would like, you know, like this. And she, you know, her claws came out and she fought me. She, she had freakish strength. And, uh, and, I, and I tried to get her down and I brought her up. Everything was wet except for this little patch of hair right here on her forehead. And so I was like, I've got to take her down again. So I, I went again and she was like, you know, like this. And, and I was like, Bleh. you know, I'm trying to, trying to knock her out, get her down. And man, I, I brought her up again and that still same patch of hair was dry. And I was just like, well, you know, you don't need bangs in heaven. All right, it's just, it's something that's violent that happens. 
Your old self is being crucified. Your old self is, is dying. And honestly, there's a lot of junk in our lives that we try to clean up and manage and we just actually need to just leave it in the tank. You need to be washed clean. You are saved by faith through grace and the finished work of Jesus on a cross. Baptism symbolizes that, but it's a cleansing. It really is. There's, so every, time, every time we make a, a decision, if you do something tangible, there's something powerful about that. Baptism is a tangible expression of what's happening on the inside. And some of you, there's a lot of junk in your life right now. And you've been scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and trying to manage it. And you need to just leave it in the tank. So years ago, we were doing, a, the reason why we do spontaneous baptisms, by the way, is because that's what was modeled for us in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Peter preaches this sermon. It says people were cut to the heart, meaning they were convicted. And they said, what do we do? And Peter didn't say, well, raise a hand and pray a prayer. He said, no, repent and be baptized. And thousands were right there in that moment. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading the prophet Isaiah, doesn't understand it. And a friend comes along and says, hey, can I explain it to you? And he does. And whatever he says, the eunuch says, look, there's water. I should be baptized right now. There's something very powerful about that. That's why we do it in the moment. And the first Sunday we ever did that was years ago. We just, I just preached on this and made an invitation. 280 people were baptized that morning. It was incredible. I'd never been any part of anything like it. And um, I was in the tank. I was in the tank till 1.30 in the afternoon. And by about baptism 1.50, my lats were cramping up and the tank was disgusting. Like I needed a hazmat suit to take people's confession, you know? And like I had like hair wrapped around my fingers and there were things floating in the water and there was this nice little film, you know, that was on the surface. And the reason why I'm telling you all that is because if you're gonna get baptized today, um, you need to get in the front of the line, all right? Just, just a little pro tip for you, all right? Just be front in line. You don't have to worry about any of that. But I loved, I loved the fact that the baptistry was disgusting because it's symbolic of what we're leaving in the tank. And some of you, you need to leave some stuff in the tank. See, on the cross, it took Jesus' death away. In his death, it took your sins away. His resurrection takes your excuses away. And so today at all of our campuses, if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, I just wanna lead you in a prayer. I just want you to make this your own. God, I'm a sinner and I plead guilty. I've done things my own way and I'm wrong. I wanna take off the jacket. I just wanna stand in front of you as I am. God, I wanna do things your way and I wanna surrender the controls of my life over to you. I believe that your son is Jesus Christ and that he came into this world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Father, I wanna accept your free gift of salvation. I want the Holy Spirit to come into my life. I wanna follow Jesus for the rest of my days as Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.